Hey everybody, it's Pastor Josh. Um, our live stream system did not work this morning. I don't know why. Our cameras just were blank. It wasn't working. We tried our best to get it to work. Um, we're going to troubleshoot and make sure it works for next week. So this morning's sermon has been recorded on my phone. It's going to sound a little different than normal. You might have to turn it up a little bit more than you normally would. Um, but we're sharing it here to make sure folks have the chance to hear it. Today's gospel reading comes from John chapter 17. Jesus prayed and said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. The man said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the man said, yes. And I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestants. And I said, me too, what denomination? He said, Baptist. And I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? The man said, Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? The man said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. And I said, me too. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? or a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The man said, I'm a Northern Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I yelled, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Comedian named Emo Phillips first told that joke in 1985. And I told it too, actually, standing right here in 2019, the last time we looked at this passage from John. I'm sure you all remember it. That morning I preached about unity. And you know, I'm shocked that my sermon didn't just take care of the problem. Here we are, three years later, the world and the church are still divided in all sorts of ways. I imagine you're surprised too. You'd think that like one sermon would take care of it, right? 
All right. These words from the Gospel of John that we heard, just like the verses we heard last week, are part of Jesus saying goodbye to his friends before the cross. And here at the end, Jesus says a prayer for the disciples that are with him and for future followers like us who won't have the chance to actually see Jesus, but who will come to know and to follow Jesus because other people show him to us, tell us about him. Jesus prays for his followers to be united, that they will be one, united, with the same kind of unity that he has with God the Father. And I have to tell you, when I hear these words, they feel idealistic and naive and even a little foolish. Maybe that's the result of the ways I've changed in the last three years, or the way our nation and our world has changed, or or maybe it's all of those things. But to be honest, it's hard for me not to laugh at this. United? Jesus thinks we can be united in the same way he's united with God? Come on. Has Jesus spent any time around humans? Because our tendency toward division, conflict, and brokenness feels so much stronger than our desire for unity. And I'm sure Jesus knows this. I mean, at this point when he's speaking, he's been with his disciples for three years, and they're still fighting over things like who's the greatest among them. He knows that even as he's speaking, one of his friends is in the process of betraying him. That one of his inner circle will soon disown him to save their own skin. He barely left the earth before they started fighting over whether the gospel could even be shared with non-Jewish people. Within the first few years, there were factions who followed different leaders. Within the first century, there was division over the role of women in the church. Within the next few hundred years, the church argued so intensely about how to understand Jesus and the Trinity that we believe one fourth-century leader of the church was actually assassinated with poison. In 1054, the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches split, and the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century led to more division and the subsequent creation of thousands of denominations, many of which were formed because of conflict and disunity. Throughout history, the church has been divided by just about everything we could imagine. Surely Jesus knew our propensity for conflict and division, a tendency that burst forth in the garden and continues today. He must have known, even as he encouraged unity, that we would disappoint, fall short, That unity would elude us because of money and power and politics and our age-old bondage to sin. And yet he still said these words. He still prayed these words. He prayed for this naive, 
idealistic, pie-in-the-sky vision of unity. He prayed for God's dream for this world to become reality. He dared to hope for something bold and audacious and seemingly unrealistic because that is what faith does. It hopes and dares to believe that God's vision and dream for this world will come true, even if it seems impossible, even if it feels out of reach, even if it takes an awful long time. And dear God, it is taking a long time. My heart feels heavy because of what happened in Texas this week and and in Buffalo the week before. And I'm sure that many of you feel the same way. I I don't even think heavy is the right word, but I can't find a word that, that is right. It's just so awful. And truthfully, it's been hard for me to not just feel cynical and full of despair this week. Because this story of mass shootings has repeated itself so many times in our nation. And as far as I can tell, nothing has meaningfully changed. Our leaders have not done anything to strengthen red flag laws or to address how the internet is radicalizing young men or to strengthen our system of mental health care or even to pass the kind of common-sense gun control legislation supported by the majority of our country. And our nation has not stopped to examine our own conscience, to ask why we are so violent as a people, why we've seen our sense of community and togetherness and basic decency decline why we refuse to question our idolatrous devotion to guns, why our society produces so many people who turn to violence, who feel like they need to turn to violence, why, in contrast to some other nations, these sorts of events do not spark change, and we accept them as the so-called cost of freedom, We are just stuck in this insane cycle. And we don't know how to break free, how to make a difference, or how to change things, because the problems feel so big, don't they? So interconnected, so entrenched. We feel powerless, and it is easy for powerlessness to make us feel despair. Cynicism, to believe that things won't ever change. Which is why I'm so glad we heard these words from Jesus this week. Because he rejected those things. That's what sticks with me. Jesus knew unity would be a goal we never quite reached, and yet he prayed for it anyway. It would have been easy for him to be cynical about the future of the church about the nature of humanity, but he rejected this temptation and called us to better things, things that are aspirational, that will perhaps never be achieved until he returns, 
things that may seem unrealistic and foolish and naive, but are still worth striving for. Jesus rejected cynicism because he knew God was not done with this world. Yes, Jesus was leaving soon, but God was about to send the Holy Spirit, which meant God was not done with the world. That God is still at work in this world. That God's dream for this world, which is big and bold and unabashed. That God's vision for this world, which is radical, transformative, and redemptive, will indeed come to pass. Jesus knew there was hope, always hope, unending hope, even for pie-in-the-sky, naive, idealistic dreams like unity. And so he rejected cynicism and despair, daring instead to hope and trust in God's dream for this world. You know, when I was in seminary about a billion years ago, my advisor was a guy named Dr. Bob Robinson. Bob Rob, we called him. He taught Old Testament and and Hebrew, and he was just this incredible, down-to-earth, loving man. And he used to tell us that a Christian can be many things, almost anything. But one thing a Christian cannot be is a cynic. Because a cynic assumes the worst about others and about the future. A cynic dismisses any possibility of selflessness and self-giving love. A cynic believes with bitterness and contempt that this world and its struggles are devoid of any hope. And Bob Robb said that this was simply incompatible with our faith in a God who turned death on a cross into an empty tomb and new life, incompatible with our confidence in a Savior whose resurrection declared victory over sin and death, incompatible with our belief that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is still here doing God's work in the world today. It's easy to feel cynical because of so many of the things happening around us. I know it is. But our faith calls us to be people of hope, to believe and pray for naive, idealistic, and seemingly impossible things because that's what Jesus did and that's what faith does. It dares to believe that God's vision and dream for this world will come to pass. We must reject cynicism and despair that tempts us to do nothing and to just settle for the way things are so that we can pray and act to bring about the things that can be to help God's vision and dream become more real here and now. I will confess to you that I don't know how to fix all that is broken in this world. Maybe Pastor Sarah does, and she can preach next time. No, I don't know. <laughs> but we all see events like what happened in Buffalo and what took place in Texas. And we all know in our souls that it's evil. 
And that something, something, something has to change. God's calling us to put our prayers into action and to work for that change. So please, as God's people, let's do that. Call and and write our elected officials and representatives and ask for the changes we can feel God crying out for. Give money and time to organizations that support this work and repair what's broken. Reach out to young families in your life and in your neighborhood to offer comfort and care and hope because they're all scared. We're all scared. Invite people to come to church where they can know love and peace and a new way of seeing one another where together we can receive hope that rejects cynicism. Together we can hear about God's dream and vision for this world. And together we can be made part of God's mission to heal it. That's where we find our unity in Christ. Like that rope, all those strings tied together were different, but we can serve that purpose together, fulfill our purpose together. So may we... So may we continue praying for naive, idealistic, and foolish things. May we dare to trust that God's dream and vision for this world, it will come to pass. And may we offer our hands and our voices and our hearts and our resources and even our very lives to help it do so. Amen. Amen.